0: For science fiction fans, space is the final frontier, an exciting next step for humanity into a domain of endless possibility. But for the less imaginative, not so much. For these cynics, space is merely a place where, really, there's nowhere to go and nothing to do. At best, space is an interesting science experiment with some national security implications, or maybe it's just a source of national pride. But don't tell any of that to the entrepreneurs who see space as a potentially massive commercial opportunity. Already, space is a pretty big business, generating some $400 billion in annual revenue. To explore the economics of space and the role of government in its commercial development, I'm joined by Professor Matthew Weinzerl of Harvard Business School and author of the paper, Space, The Final Frontier. Matt, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now in the paper you write, quote, after decades of centralized control of economic activity in space, NASA had begun to see the direction of human activity in space to commercial companies. Why did this happen decades earlier? Is the technology so much radically better now? I think I think given the Apollo anniversary, we've sort of heard these stories about how America sort of lost interest in space after it's clear that we won the space race and then after Apollo. Ah, uh, we didn't we didn't do all those extra Apollo missions. So why? What is sort of the catalyst for sort of this renewed interest?
1: That's a great question. I think there, it, it's multi-causal, but I think the most important thing is that, like any centralized system, the space industry, the space sector that grew out of the space race, and in particular the Apollo program that you're talking about, uh, because it's centralized, had some really powerful advantages. Right, it could set goals quickly and and pursue them. Uh, in particular public goals, but it also had some real weaknesses. And so over time, those weaknesses tended to build up. And the real crisis point came with the shuttle program, which had some remarkable successes, but was never quite what people hoped it would be, and eventually became uh, too costly and then too dangerous with the two Uh, accidents for it to continue running. And when the shuttle program was canceled in the early 2000s, it was really a crisis point for the space program because we realized that the United States would no longer be able to send astronauts into space from its own soil. And that was really a sign, a very depressing sign to people that these Mm -hmm. disadvantages of the centralized system had finally caught up to us.
0: So entrepreneurs being uh, aware, looking for opportunities, see the situation and they act. Mm-hmm. who are the actors, or, or put another right. way, of that 300 to $400 billion, how is that currently being generated, and is that is that a result of entrepreneurs? Is it just government paying for space launches? W- where is that money coming from currently?
1: Excellent. So that's a really illustrative story, actually, for this broader theme. So of the almost $400 billion, wow. the vast majority is satellite-based revenue, so telecommunications, Internet, things like that, some Earth observation. Uh, And that actually has been going strong. That sub-industry, so to speak, within space, has been going strong for a couple of decades. And that's partly because the United States and other countries early on recognized that there was, or earlier on, (laughs) recognized that there was commercial potential uh, in satellites through telecommunications and did a bit more privatization. So quite early on, a public-private partnership program was set up to encourage private investment in satellites. And so then the entrepreneurs were able to, you know, pursue those opportunities where they saw profits. And that's that's uh, remained the vast, vast majority of actual economic activity in space. The interesting connection to our first uh, question is that now there's a bit more of that happening in the broader space economy, what you might think of as the beyond satellite aspects of space. So NASA is starting to open up those activities to private entrepreneurs, partnering with them and, and hoping and, and subsidizing their early efforts a bit in the hopes that they can similarly inspire this broad public-private uh, cooperation.
0: Um, you, you also write that it's a widely shared goal among commercial space leaders, including the sort of the internet billionaires who are interested in this. Right. Uh, the achievement of a large-scale Largely self-sufficient, developed space economy. Right, uh, right. That's more than just satellite launches. What, but what, what, what would that look like? Exactly. And, and what, yeah. and what is the potential there? I've heard a trillion dollars, but we're almost halfway to a trillion dollars already. That sounds like a right. lot more than a trillion dollars.
1: Excellent. So the the growth projections that you see coming out of investment banks are are interesting. They're big numbers. Are completely accurate, right? I get it completely. Right. <laughs> but but what's actually quite striking about those numbers is. At some level, they're quite conservative, just as you pointed out. You know, we're at $400 billion already. You look 30, 35 years ahead. They don't seem to be speaking in real terms. They seem to be speaking in non-inflation-adjusted terms. So a trillion dollars is not crazy. It's 5 6% growth, right? So the dreams of people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are are orders of magnitude, I would say, larger than that. Maybe not over a 30-year horizon, but over a 100-year horizon for sure. And and this is when I said at the beginning that there, it's multi-causal this is the one wild card, so to speak, that has been thrown in and really accelerated some of this activity. Namely, we have a few billionaires who are absolutely passionate about space and have been for years. And, and I think Jeff Bezos is the single strongest example of that. He's been really focused on humans expanding their presence in space and using space to make life on Earth better ever since he was a little kid. And he just happens to be the world's wealthiest person. And so... It's a remarkable confluence of sort of structural factors, like we were talking about with the weaknesses of a centralized system, and then this random, random, idiosyncratic timing of who happens to have a, a lot of money.
0: But this isn't just a you know he 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 he's interested in building you know, Mars colonies. Elon Musk has told there there is there is a a I mean what is the business case for this being a mm. a five trillion dollar industry or a ten trillion dollar industry? I mean healthcare is. Healthcare is, I guess, a little over one trillion. I suppose it depends how you know what you consider to be healthcare. But for this to be a massively bigger industry, again, what is is it is it is it hotels in space? Is it moon colonies, Mars yeah, colonies? Is yeah. it asteroid mining? What is what does that look like?
1: Yep. Well, you've put your finger on, at some level, the hardest question. There is a refrain going around among space folks, which is, where is the demand going to come from? So we've had Bezos and Musk focused on lowering the cost of launch uh, dramatically, and they have succeeded in doing that. Uh, especially SpaceX has done remarkable things in getting, making it cheaper to imagine doing things in space. But what exactly would we be doing, right? Where would, where would the five trillion come from? What is the great app, you know, the killer app, so to speak? And various it can't I guess, be
0: it can't be space tourism.
1: I, well, I so that's the thing so very there's a there's a sort of family of things that have been pr- proposed. so space tourism is one, but let me just say there's a wide range of of expectations about how big that could be. Some people think in the trillions, right? the tourism market is enormous. So if you imagined a lot of people being interested in that and the cost coming down to be, you know, a Disney World-level vacation, maybe it could be in that range. But then there are people who think there's just not nearly enough demand for, a you know, even one day trip into space, if you could imagine something like that. Asteroid mining, as you mentioned, has long been a hope of people. It's hard to make the economics of asteroid mining particularly compelling, actually. Um, As you can imagine, bringing anything heavy back from space is extremely expensive. And so unless it's absolutely essential and rare on Earth, It's hard to see, you know, the value, uh, the value proposition. Uh, There may be some hope that mining water in space is actually more economically viable. But the funny thing is that's a little bit chicken and the egg because we don't really need that much water in space unless we're already doing other things in space. (laughs) And that's the very question we started with. There are a couple of really out there ideas. And I, you know, if you look back at the history of science fiction, which I do think, I'm glad you started with that in your opening, because I do think that's inspiring some of the entrepreneurs. Some of the big ideas are solar energy from space or settlements in space. And you can imagine both of those being at a scale to really get you up into the multiple trillions, though they're very difficult. But would all these
0: industries, would they be there sort of to complement a, a non-commercial enterprise. It's just as a as a country or as a civilization, we think we need to be out there for some reason. Whether it's purely for science or so we can keep going after a, a massive asteroid strike on Earth, we as a civilization decide we need to be out there. And so then there's this sort of complementary private sector that builds up around. I mean, is that is that the case, or is it a purely commercial effort? Is that ultimately the stronger
1: case? No. Well, ultimately stronger case is exactly, I think it's exactly the right question. Um, I've, I neglected to mention one, let me, I'll get to that in one second. I neglected to mention one other sort of smaller scale idea, which I don't want to forget for your listeners, which is in-space manufacturing. Because some of them may have heard of this company, Made in Space in particular, has been trying to manufacture things in space like fiber optic cable, where zero gravity is particularly valuable. And so there is some potential that we'll discover that, producing something up there in zero gravity, whether it's pharmaceuticals or something some high-tech material, is in fact much better than on earth. So again, you could imagine that being a something of a killer app I, that that product hasn't been discovered yet um, but there's still some hope for that. So to your bigger question, you know if we don't find an amazing killer app that makes us want to put a lot in space from a profit making perspective, I think, Many of us who think about this industry are led in a direction to where you went, which is that, you know, when do you get a self-sustaining economy? When people live somewhere. And and so then it's just that humans have a drive, at least some humans, have a drive to try a new place uh, and start new societies that cater to their particular tastes. And maybe that will eventually happen in space as the costs of living come down there and as our technology continues to progress. And then, of course, you would need lots of economic activity just to support those um, Small civilizations
0: is the better example, and there's probably some similarities to both these examples, is the example of journeying from the old world uh, in Europe uh, across the Atlantic to the new world. That's I, I often hear that as sort of the example, and you know what were what were the costs of doing that versus the costs? uh of, of setting up a uh, a moon colony or is it something a little more common which is just the idea of moving out to the suburbs which yeah. you sort of end the paper and then maybe that's the way to look at it as sort of a kind of a, a super uh with the, the, the quote is um uh successful economic development of space uh tests the limits of imagination however it might plausibly share some of the features of post-war america suburbanization how so
1: So I think uh, there's two really interesting questions underneath that. I think the analogy to the Europeans sailing across and trying to settle the Americas is apt because it seemed, you know, many, many people died trying to do it. And given their technology at the time, it was a tremendous lift to imagine doing this, which is analogous to how people talk about space now. It's incredibly inhospitable to humans. Robots do much better in space than we do. And are there really people who are gonna take those kinds of risks? And I think especially because we've tended to think of space, uh, the public program of space as safety first, right? We really don't want any fatalities in space, though of course they are inevitable at some level. We would have to shift our thinking quite a bit, I think back to more of a risk-taking exploratory view if we wanted to go out and settle space anytime soon, because it is gonna be very hard. And some people believe that the challenges are of a scale you know, so far beyond those facing the European settlers that it's it's actually quite misleading to think of that as a useful analogy. I think that's very hard to say with technology. I mean, we, in two hundred years, we have no idea, right? So I, I I hesitate to speculate about whether it's too hard or not. The the super is, suburban, is there a price point? Like I don't know what yes. it
0: costs to move uh, you know a ton of cargo uh, right. in in seventeen hundred or sixteen hundred <laughs> yeah. from you know from from the United from from England to massachusetts uh and i don't know what and i i imagine it's you know you know less than moving a ton of cargo from here to the international space station or a moon colony but there's is there like i don't know is there a price point people who analyze this look at where oh boy if we could do that then all of a sudden it, it totally opens up space to commercialization and habitation
1: yeah that's an excellent question i think the Long story short, the cost would have to come down probably another order of magnitude or two from what it already has for us to really imagine settlements at any scale. Now, that's partly because unlike the Europeans, uh, when they moved to the Americas, we can't rely on where we show up to be hospitable to life, right? So we have to build the actual physical infrastructure to support life, um, atmosphere and so on. And that raises the upfront fixed cost to a level that might be prohibitive. Now, again, if robotic technology and AI and asteroid mining technologies progress quickly enough, one can imagine those figures coming down. And then, and then what you're talking about with bringing down launch costs, you know, we could imagine reaching that point. I should just mention, by the way, that I think the specific research project you just proposed is an excellent idea. (laughs) And part of what I believe I I think I
0: stole it from uh, from Freeman Dyson in his book, Disturbing the Universe, where I I thought I remember him talking about what these price points were.
1: Right. So part of the part of the broader goal of people like me, and there aren't too many of us who are economists thinking about space, is to to try to tee up research questions like this so that, you know, we can try to bring our tools to bear and help make this industry as successful as possible.
0: So let me let me ask you this: Would you uh, go to outer space for a day or for or for a week? <laughs> I, I I remember. I think it was one of the early um, uh, sort of Virgin Galactic test flights, and the uh, the craft was in the air, and then it just started spinning. Yeah, <laughs> not out of control, but very. I'm like, no, nah, uh, that's I'll, I'll, I'm going to take a hard pass. Yeah, uh, would you do it?
1: When I was in my mid twenties, I think I would have done it. Uh, now I'm older than that and I have a daughter. And so I think my risk aversion has gone substantially up or maybe just the consequences of taking risks have gone up. So no, I don't, I don't think I'm an early adopter, so to speak. Right. Um, but, you know, luckily we have a certain, even maybe small, but I think non-zero fraction of humans who are very excited about taking big risks. <laughs> uh, and so I think there's enough demand uh, for some of these early flights that maybe we can move our way down the cost curve, which is really all that they're trying to do with these early launches. Eventually, um, I'd love to live in space. I mean, eventually, as as one of my friends says, once they're making hot chocolate in space, I'm willing to go up
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's, uh, a lot of the papers, are you're looking at sort of you know, the uh, business case, but you're also looking at sort of like, looking at it as sort of an interesting sort of economic experiment or, or test case. And you write, um, if such space economy visions are even partially realized, the implications will be enormous. It will be our best chance in human history to create and study economic societies from nearly blank slate. Though economists should treat the prospect of a developed space economy with healthy skepticism, it would be irresponsible to treat it as science fiction. And when I, I read that line years, I remembered the, I thought of the Oppenheimer line about the atomic bomb. It was that, It was it was so technically sweet, like he couldn't not work on it, whatever whatever the implications he had to. Mm. So sort of as an economist, when you look at the prospect of a sort of of a brand new society uh, or civilization and trying to apply our sort of earthbound economic concepts. Again, that's must be like a a, just a very interesting thing. And how do you go about doing that?
1: Right. Well, this gets back to the earlier question you had on this notion of the analogy to suburbanization, what I called supra-urbanization, because as many of your listeners who are sort of economists or economist nerds at heart might remember, there's this idea out there called Tebow theory, which is the idea of competition across local jurisdictions, namely suburbs for different residents, which we think can encourage the efficient provision of public goods and so on. Space is just the most dramatic possible Landscape for that sort of thing to eventually happen, where people are creating societies and moving to them that are designed from scratch to be what they think of as something like a utopia. And of course, utopian thinking can be silly and risky and all those sorts of things, but it's also very exciting. And so, you know, there's a lot of historical baggage in terms of institutional and policy reform on earth that it would be nice to do without. And whether that means you're a libertarian and would like, Libertarian paradise, or a socialist, and want to build a socialist paradise. Space might provide us a chance to actually try some of these things and see how they work when really given free rein to run from scratch. And so, for an economist, especially one who likes to think about the optimal design of policy, it is a bit irresistible.
0: How easy is it to um, apply these concepts right now? Concepts like you know externalities or yeah. or, or or property rights. Uh, if if uh, if your vision, if I, I think it's some of the more realistic science fiction uh, films, at least uh, a movie like Gravity or The Martian, it just seems like it takes so much effort for space not to kill you that thinking about what are the externalities here, or property rights, or you know the opportunity costs. it almost seems like you'll never get to that because you're just trying not to die. So. <laughs> So so then so how do you go about applying some of these sort of I guess common economic concepts to in in your own work to to
1: space? Yeah, so that's that's funny. It is it is true. Space can kill you in many ways. I guess what I would say is that to get to a point where it can be safe to go to space and where these huge visions can eventually be pursued and realized, we have to make it, I think, commercially viable, uh, so that we can get the scale of investment we need to get to that point and. And part of that means solving some of the market failures that otherwise beset the industry. I mean, there's a reason why we started with a centralized space model, not just for national security reasons, but because the market doesn't have a lot of ability to produce these sorts of things without a little bit of a boost. Uh, And I think the most pressing one of those perhaps is this sort of positive externalities across space businesses. As we started our conversation with It's not really clear yet why we would want to go up there. And that means that any business model that might thrive in space once we have a space economy can't get off the ground, no pun intended. Uh, And this sort of chicken and the egg problem is pervasive among space startups uh, trying to do things that are a little more beyond the, a little bit beyond the near-Earth satellite sector.
0: Uh, You know, a common question is whether, and I'm sure that the people in the space program, uh, in the sixties and seventies, got this all the time. Is this a good use of like taxpayer money? Is this a good use of uh, money that could be spent down here rather than up there? No, it's a little bit different. If you're talking about a commercial enterprise where supposedly you, uh, at some point, it needs to it needs to make a profit. You're looking at costs and benefits. Does that question even does that kind of opportunity cost problem? Uh, does that apply to sort of the private the private exploration and use of space the way it kind of does with government?
1: That's an excellent question. I think, I mean, first, just on the government point, one thing I would say is that the idea of partnering with the private sector probably actually saves, certainly in the long run, uh, saves the taxpayer quite a bit of resources, or at least we get a lot more for our ba- a lot more bang for our buck in the space sector. And so I think that's a very positive development for those who are worried that we spend too much on space. Um, Maybe not a lot of the listeners to this particular episode of the podcast, but that is a common concern in the, out in the public. On the question of whether there's an opportunity cost with private sector investment, I'd say I, I think two things, maybe three. The first, the first is that you know we often have the private sector make big bets on crazy technology, and that's just part of the nature of innovation. So I think we should be hesitant to be too worried about that. Um, the second is that some people worry that what's really going on in the private sector especially cause it's coming from a couple of billionaires is that it's almost more of a philanthropic exercise or, or a passion project or, or something that's not based on trying to actually turn a profit and therefore isn't to market discipline. There may actually be some of that. I mean, I think that's not implausible uh, although these are pretty great business people. So I would, I hesitate to, to doubt their judgment on that either. But if what you're worried is that there are you know problems on earth we should be fixing versus going up into space I think the motivations of these philanthropists are, in fact, deeply humanitarian. They just think there's a different you know, set of problems we need to be solving or maybe a different set of solutions to them. And, and so there's a lot of criticism sometimes about the money being spent up there versus down here. But I think both Bezos and Musk and others uh, are quite eloquent, actually, on the idea of either we need a backup for Earth or the sort of stuff that we're doing up there in space can potentially lead to... Really beneficial things happening on Earth in terms of moving heavy industry off of the planet, or you know, cleaner power generation like that. So, so I think that's also important uh, to recognize. And then the last thing I would add, which because I just think it's important, is that one of the great benefits of thinking about space that I found with my students and alums and just the general audience is that it gives you a way to look at what we do here a bit from the outside. Right? You see yourself a little bit when you're looking at other things and and that's really true in space. If you think about what, how you would want to design a space colony, you uh, think, at least me think, a lot more clearly about my priorities here on Earth. And so I think money spent pursuing that, those sorts of thoughts and vision is actually quite well spent. What would you have to see government
0: do to facilitate this? We've been talking about the private sector, but uh, and government sort of getting out of the way. Well, what does it still need to do?
1: The program that is often cited as the single most encouraging in terms of the government's role is this program called COTS, Commercial Orbital Transportation Services from the mid-2000s, which is this relatively inexpensive public-private partnership program that spurred the development of these private launch services, namely SpaceX and Blue Origin and Orbital ATK and a few others. I think what many of us in the sector, and, and certainly what I would like to see, is the government to continue building on that experience and do that with other aspects or other goals within the system. So using a bit of public money to lower the barriers to entry for entrepreneurs and get rid of some of the fixed costs or or offset some of the fixed costs of getting humans off the planet, uh, whether that's for tourism to the space station or beyond, building habitats in space uh, that could serve as space hotels, or space manufacturing plants, or eventually space settlements. Um, you know, experimenting a bit with energy from space and some of these other way out there sorts of ideas, but that that have such promise in terms of the scale that it would be a huge win if we could do them. The government can do a lot by seeding those activities up front in a sort of R and D style uh, exercise.
0: You're close to people in this industry.
1: Any talk of space elevators? You know, it's so funny you ask about that. I was just having a conversation with a friend about that the other day. Generally, space elevators inspire derision among people <laughs> in the space sector. <laughs> There's a real, it's a—it's very tempting. So certainly sci-fi and even people uh, in the sector recognize that if you had a space elevator, it really would change the economics of getting into space. And that's why it's such a perpetually uh, appealing idea. and Of course, again, with technological innovation, you'd never want to write it off because it would be such a win. We seem to be pretty far from what we would need to make that actually work. There are some people quite interested in working on it. There's a couple of foundations that pursue it uh, actively. I was just reading a book the other day on uh, from one of them. But of course, the until you solve those technological problems, it is still a bit in the realm of science fiction. Uh, But you're right, that it would be a game changer if we could make it happen. What sort of prompted your
0: interest? Are you sort of a sci-fi person who became interested (laughs) in economics? Uh, Read the Foundation series by Asimov, a very common story. Uh, Where does your interest stem from?
1: So it started, I I suppose, I was raised on a steady diet of Star Trek The Next Generation by my dad. Um, So I've always had that in my mind, although I wouldn't have ever called myself a space Enthusiast or space nut or anything like that. I never went to space camp. Never had that uh, experience. It really came out of my interest in the role of economic policy and the role of government. Uh, I was building a elective course here at Harvard Business School on the role of the government in the economy, and I was interested in looking deeply into a sector where the public and private arms were deeply intertwined. And like everyone else, I was seeing the things SpaceX was doing and the early 2010s and it struck me that I always thought of space as a purely public sector activity and what was this private company doing launching rockets and relanding them on barges and so I started reaching out to alums who are in the sector and trying to understand it from an economist's perspective this interaction between the public and private and so that's how I really got interested in it. Last question
0: how long until we see 10,000 people living in space?
1: (laughs) Well that's The multi-trillion dollar question, isn't it? Uh, I can't give you a date, I'm sorry to say. I would be, you know, I would be surprised if we didn't have 10,000 people living in space in 500 years. Uh, That's obviously a very long time from now, so anything's game. in a hundred years, I would also be surprised. I would also be surprised if we didn't have a substantial group of people living in space in a hundred years, whether that's on a moon base or in a couple of floating private stations slash hotels or even on Mars, although I think that's a reach. So I think a hundred years is not uh, beyond uh, the horizon for when we could really start to see this activity happening. My guest today is by Matt Weinville.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Jim. we we'll